Welcome to the Marketplace Jungle podcast, where we discuss the world of e-commerce marketplaces beyond Amazon. Brought to you by eChameleon, I'm your host, Jesse Bragg, and in this episode, we're joined by Jason Greenwood. Jason's a California native who's been living in New Zealand for almost 30 years and has been at the coalface of e-commerce since the very early days. He's an expert in all things omnichannel and has a particular focus on helping brands do e-commerce right. In this episode, you can expect to hear Jason's experiences from the earliest days of e-commerce, how an eccentric startup from New Zealand kept eBay at bay, why Facebook Marketplace is one to watch, how you can start selling in the ANZ region, and how B2C brands and retailers can make the most of B2B marketplaces. Jason, thank you very much for joining us from New Zealand. It's great to have you on the show for a very early episode in the Marketplace Jungle where we want to talk about everything marketplaces, particularly marketplaces outside of the world of Amazon. I'd love to give you a couple of moments to introduce yourself and in particular to tell us about your journey into e-commerce. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Jesse. I really appreciate you hosting me and having me here today. Hopefully, we'll be able to talk about some things that are useful to your audience. I know you're just about ready to kick off this new, newly launched podcast, so hopefully this will be an interesting one for your, for your rapidly go or what I'm sure will be a rapidly growing audience. Because I think marketplaces are, they have a, a special place in, in consumers' hearts and they're, they have a rapidly increasing um, place in merchants' hearts. And so this is, I think you, you know, you've, you've got some fantastic timing in terms of when you're starting your podcast here. So, so pretty smart move on your part, I think. And for, speaking for myself, you know, look, I've, I've been in the industry nearly 22 years now, and I started out working for an agency, actually. I kind of fell into, in Christchurch, New Zealand, South Island. I had a friend of a friend who owned an agency. And this was in the very, very early days of e-commerce, obviously. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of great platforms out there. OS Commerce was one of the major e-commerce platforms of the day. Um, the company that I worked for had a one of the very, very earliest SaaS e-commerce platforms of their own that they had built in-house. But it was really, it lacked a lot of features. And so we, as an agency, uh, started building um, sites on OS Commerce as well. And that's kind of how I got my, that's, that's how I got my trial by fire, really, in the industry. And I was working across both um, business analysis, business consulting. We were doing marketing cons- consultation as well. We were doing, we were delivering some marketing services. Some, some we delivered in house. Some we delivered via, via uh, contractors. And it was, it was really, it was so early in the piece that everybody was kind of figuring it out as, as they went along. I don't, I don't think anybody who was was around twenty plus years ago in our industry could say that they were an expert because I don't think anybody was an expert. You know, there were people out there that, that certainly knew how to game Google. Even by that stage, there was a lot of people that were able to get super high page rank when page rank mattered, mattered back in the early days. And it was a super interesting industry to be a part of. And I kind of, I guess I had seen really from the early days of the internet, because I'm old enough, I'm probably dating myself here, but I'm old enough to remember a pre-internet, pre-internet days, the coming of the internet, and then post-internet days. And and I, I saw the writing on the wall very early on when, when I first started using the internet. I, I saw how powerful it was. I saw how powerful email was. I saw how powerful uh, live chat was. I saw I saw how powerful some of these things were. And it was it was I just knew that this was going to become one of the biggest I, w- I wouldn't say I didn't use the terminology sales channel, I guess back in that point, but one of the most common ways people were going to buy stuff. I just knew people are going to buy lots of stuff online because this is just so convenient. And and even the little success 
early on because remember internet adoption it it took a while it ramped pretty quick but it but it took a long time for people to trust actually spending money online and and I think that was the key and I knew mm -hmm. that 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 hurdle would be overcome I knew that the early adopters the early tech adopters like myself they would overcome those hurdles they would tell their friends those friends would tell their friends and I and I knew before we even had really used the term network effects I knew that this thing would 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 just spread virally from friend to friend, from early adopters and people like me that were willing to take risks all the way down to, to moms and pops. I, I knew that that was, that was the thing. And so I knew that I needed to be part of the space somehow and just through sheer coincidences, how I actually came to work in the space, worked in, in agency land for a while. Then I started up my own e-commerce pure play with a, fear, uh, with a friend of mine here in New Zealand. We ran that for nearly eight years, very successful online business, selling memory cards and other digital products online. Um, we imported them directly in New Zealand. We warehoused them locally and we shipped them direct to consumer. So we were one of the first uh, direct to consumer plays in New Zealand that was doing what we did. And we, you know, we undercut the market massively with our pricing and still made fantastic profits. And, and that's because we weren't buying off of local distributors. We were buying off of um, manufacturers, wholesalers and distributors overseas, effectively parallel importing them into New Zealand and selling them direct to the consumer. And then from there, continued to work across agencies and continue to work across merchants and now have my own consulting business. So it's been a it's been an awesome journey. It's been a long journey, but I can't imagine doing anything else. It sounds like it. And I mean, obviously coming from California, but living in New Zealand for so long, I, I guess you had a, a unique perspective on this compared to perhaps local competitors. But just just for, for context, because I was probably maybe 10 years behind. I remember the internet as it was coming up. I grew up in the 90s, so I, I remember that dial-up tone just, but I was pretty much a, a digital kid. Tell me about what New Zealand was like in e-commerce compared to the rest of the world at the time. When, when you're talking to friends back in California about your e-commerce business, were you like ahead of the times even in comparison to what was going on there, or was it happening kind of parallel? Yeah, look, New Zealand has always been behind the times, unfortunately, from an internet perspective. And even, and even to this day, you know, we're only just barely breaking into double digits in New Zealand in terms of penetration of total retail uh, being e-commerce. And and it was certainly true back then. We were, you know, I don't want to say we were backwater because I don't, I don't think we were, but certainly we were, we were behind the times compared to Australia, compared to the States, and certainly compared to the UK. I mean, we, we all knew, even, even in those earliest days, for some reason, the UK... I don't know if it was a confluence of, of you know, access to Europe. I don't know whether it was a confluence of more advanced telecommunications over a smaller country, so it was more condensed and maybe easier from a logistics perspective mm -hmm. to set up e-commerce in the UK and be able to access the broader UK economy. I, I don't know what it was exactly that all came together for the UK to really, from a Western nation perspective, to really just leap ahead, uh, even against the United States. And certainly, even against Asia in the early days, the, the UK was was pretty much leading the world from a from an e-commerce perspective. And I'm, I'm not sure what all conspired together to make that happen, but we all kind of knew that that was the case. Even back then, we recognized that was the case. America was was kind of second place uh, behind the UK. It was growing rapidly, but again, because of I guess the geographic. Um, layout of the United States and the difficulty of logistics across the United States because of course this was pre Amazon days and and you know Amazon was one of the first major players but you know they certainly weren't the logistics powerhouse that they are today and so it took a long time for America to work out how are we going to make this transition 
even from a, a, a male perspective, meaning a, a shipping perspective, because we had the United States, you know, we, we had the United States mail service and it was really difficult for them to transition away from postal mail being delivered to people's houses to primarily a parcel driven business. And so it took a while for, for all these businesses to adjust to this brave new world of e-commerce. And so even though consumers may have been ready to go and ready to push that button, their early experiences were not fantastic. But let's, let's be honest. Their early experiences were not fantastic. Internet speeds were not fantastic. Um, and, I, and I think that you know, we, from a telecommunications and broadband perspective in New Zealand, we were, we were far, far, far behind Australia. We were far behind the United States. And so you know, it, was, it was hard slog. It was really hard. I mean I remember when we first started up our, our pure play one of the, the common questions, and I mentioned this on a couple of other podcasts before, I don't know what it was about the, uh, Nicaragua, but for some reason, everybody who called us or emailed us said, you know, are you actually in New Zealand or are you some, in some place like Nicaragua or are you in some place overseas where, you know, you're going to take our money and, and we're not going not to get the goods? And I don't know how many emails. It would have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails like that, hundreds and hundreds of phone calls like that. We had a free phone number from day one so people could ring us for free. Um, and we felt that that was an important thing to make it easy. And, and even from cell phones, we covered uh, because it was pretty early days for cell phones as well. And we, we even covered the cost of cell phones calling our 0800 number, which cost us a lot extra at that at that time. And um, I just I just remember the the primary questions we got weren't about our products. It wasn't about our prices. It wasn't about you know it wasn't about hey, will this work in in my in my camera? Although that was that was some of the percentage of calls that we got, for example. And it was in the early days of, of cell phones having memory, memory cards as well, uh, within about a couple of years of us starting our business. And, and we just got so few questions about that because what we try to do, even from those early days, we recognized that we needed to have a lot of product information online, more than one image. We needed to have great product descriptions. We needed to have uh, great ma matrices on our website to show what products worked in what devices. We tried to keep those current. Um, so even in the early days, we, we tried to make sure that any of the product-related questions that people might have about our products were on our website, that we gave as much information as we could. We scoured the digital press. We would take all the information from our suppliers, and we would try to translate that into something that, that was useful to our customers. So we tried to really do that as best we could. But there was just such a massive distrust in just putting your credit card. It, it, people felt like they were just throwing their, their credit card out into the ether, uh, and they just had no idea what was going to mm -hmm. happen to it at that point. And so we just got so many emails, so many phone calls from people saying, are you legit? Are you real? Why do you sound like you have an American accent? Are you based in New Zealand? Are you based in America? My business partner was a Kiwi, so luckily he took a lot of the phone calls, and it was maybe less of an issue with an accent. But there was just such massive <laughs> distrust. In, in spending money online in those early days. That was the biggest hurdle we had to overcome. Until Elon came along, I suppose, with yeah. PayPal. And, uh, made, yeah. That certainly made it levels. easier, for sure. Is it fair to say then, because at least pre-COVID, an e-commerce retailer in the Western world could look at China and figure out what's going on there and what are they doing well there, whether it's live chat or messaging services with with customers and, and things like that you could look at china for many years and you could kind of get a feeling for what was coming and you could begin to prepare yourself for that did you have that same luxury sitting in new zealand watching what was happening in the us and the uk going okay you know what we can keep an eye on this and we can kind of stay one step ahead of the curve locally or was it something else i think we were all being led by the nose by google 
That's the reality. Everybody the world over, we weren't looking to Asia. We weren't looking to the United States specifically, apart from the fact that Google obviously was based in the United States. And so from that perspective, everybody was trying to please Google. Everybody was trying to do awesome SEO. You know, Basically, every single time there was an algo update, even back then, that was that was the big thing. Whenever, whenever Google made a change to their algorithm and you would, you would drop a few places, you'd be tracking your keywords in a keyword tracking tool and you'd say, oh my God, we've dropped you know, three places. And even then you knew, you knew if you were not on the first page of Google, you pretty much were, were, were not going to be found online. And I likened it, you know, when, we, when we were consulting to customers back then, I likened it to you, know, you have this big, massive you know, five meter by five meter or 10 meter by 10 meter flash billboard that you spent twenty thousand dollars building right but then you have two buildings that are side by side and they're only 20 centimeters apart and you put your billboard on one of those walls between those two buildings that's that's what i described it as because you could build the the flashiest Mm -hmm. website in the world but uh, but if nobody knows you exist then what's the point and and i was one of the earliest earliest users of adwords uh, in our own business and and with our clients businesses when i was working agency side and we were all trying to figure out this AdWords thing. We were all trying to figure out how to get the best deals, long tail keywords, uh, doing SEO across the website, building landing pages, um, doing you know link swapping, link building was was a huge thing back then. Link farms were a big thing, unfortunately, but you know Google Google respected the number the, the number of links was more important than the anchor text. It was more important than the domain authority of the of the site linking to you. It was. It was based primarily on the sheer number of links linking to you. Now they they changed that pretty quickly because they saw that they were getting gamed. But it, but in the earliest days, it was like how many links can we get to our website? How many links can we get to key pages? You know how many um, how many directories online directories? Because that that was the source of a lot of links back in the day. Was these online directories that were vertical specific? So if you were into I don't know if you were into cars, then you might have a a link directory that was full of of all the websites in relation to, I don't know, let's say you're into Mustangs or let's say you're into vintage cars, you're into whatever. You know, there was lots of, of vertical specific and maybe even brand specific directories out there and you're trying to get into anything related to your to your product and brand. And so really in the early days, we weren't necessarily looking to America or or the UK in terms of how we did e-commerce because I think that was very regionalized in terms of working with local couriers and and local service providers and agencies and and all that sort of stuff and and even from a platform perspective we <laughs> we were all trying to figure out <clears throat> what was going to be the best platform instead of building everything bespoke because in the early days all, almost every single e-commerce website was a bespoke build it was it was a completely custom from scratch build and that was very expensive it was very time consuming and in fact early e-commerce websites a lot of them were built in pure flash which of course Google couldn't even index, and so it was it was it was a really challenging time trying to figure out what Google wanted, how they wanted it, uh, and how you could, you know, I, I hesitate to use the term game the system because all we were trying to do was make Google happy. We were trying to satisfy Google mm-hmm. so that we could get the highest rankings we possibly could, so that we could get in front of eyeballs. That was the key goal back then. And for a lot of people, that hasn't changed, especially for a lot of D two C brands, making sure that the search engines are. That the algorithms are working in your favor, especially for the social channels for your Facebooks and your Instagram. It's all still the same game. It's just with different players. Okay, so let's fast forward a little bit. Marketplaces are becoming a thing. A young man, Mr. Bezos, over in your part of the world, has started his little venture. You've got eBay starting to, or eBay's doing very well, and 
consumer to consumer marketplaces are a thing. You've got Craigslist, you've got uh, Gumtree in your part of the world. There's a number of different channels out there. And while this is all happening in the rest of the world, in New Zealand, a, a lovely little company called TradeMe is popping up, which until five years ago or so was basically the only marketplace in New Zealand. That's changed yep. as far as I'm aware, but maybe you can fill me in on what's happened because I'm thinking pre-Brexit. So most of the people that I'm talking to, most of the sellers that I work with on a regular basis, they're UK or US-based customers or EU customer, uh, sellers, I should say. And a lot of their internationalization really stopped when Brexit happened and then obviously COVID hit. And a lot of them are just now starting to put their eye on that corner of the world again. They're going, what about Australia? Didn't Amazon open there? What about New Zealand? Was it a trade me? Trade me is the marketplace there. But a lot's changed since then, right? There's, there's a bunch of new channels have popped up, uh, some good, some bad, some category specific, some, yeah, fill me in. What's, what's going on over there? I think it's, it's difficult to talk about the state of the New Zealand marketplace market without also talking about the state of the Australian marketplace market. And they are radically different. We, we, for some reason, we, we diverged radically. Uh, we diverged pretty radically in our approach to marketplaces in New Zealand and Australia, um, particularly over the last you know five years or so. It has is, it is diverged even, even further. I like to think of Australia as one of the over, most over-marketplaced countries in the world. I'm not aware of any other country in the world outside of Australia that has the sheer number of, of both general and vertical specific marketplaces that Australia does. There's like 10 major marketplaces in Australia. Uh, from a consumer goods perspective, and then there's there's Trade Square and a couple of other B two B specific marketplaces. So there is just an absolute all out war in Australia for the hearts and minds of Australians to to, to shop online, both from a D two C perspective and from a marketplace perspective. So it's it's pretty full on in Australia and New Zealand. I think diverged. You know, just to finish off the Australian discussion. Um, Really, the first marketplace that had massive penetration um, was eBay in Australia, and they owned that market alongside their payment brethren, PayPal, for a long, long time. They pretty much had a complete stranglehold and a lock on that market, and they they only, you know, over the last say five to ten years, it's only been over the last five, last five or ten years that other marketplaces have really had the opportunity to make a serious dent in what was initially basically a monopoly on that market. <clears throat> New Zealand was very different. New Zealand, you know, eBay tried to come into New Zealand and they utterly failed. They pulled up their, they, you know, after a couple of years, it went nowhere and they they tucked their tail between their legs and they went running back to, to Australia and, and, and America. Um, and the reason why we had that issue here in New Zealand or why New Zealand was diverged so far was because primarily our telecommunications were way, way behind the world. We were on dial-up in New Zealand much longer than America, much longer than Australia. And as a result of that, these super heavy websites like eBay, which were not coded to be fast, they were not coded to be efficient. eBay was always a disaster from a UI UX perspective. It was always a disaster from day one, and it still is a disaster, frankly, as far as I'm concerned. It's an absolute shambles. Uh, and what TradeMe did, and, and, and let's make no mistake, TradeMe pretty much owns the marketplace market in New Zealand, or at least they did up until Facebook market came along. Um, and they started in 1999. Now, 
Sam Morgan, who started Trade Me, his primary goal, he realized that New Zealand was behind the times from a telecommunications perspective. And their sole or primary goal in the way that they coded Trade Me was that the site could load even on dial-up in under two seconds. So each page could load in under two wow. seconds. That was their that was their primary goal. So speed was their absolute focus from day one. And so Trade Me even till today looks super basic. It hasn't changed hardly at all. The UI hasn't changed hardly at all since 1999. Their goal always was how can we make this thing the fastest that we can possibly make it on dial-up, uh, poor dial-up. And that is one of their primary reasons why they found so much success here because they were just the best at, at, at making a website that could perform really, really well under really crappy conditions. And, uh, and it, is, it has paid massive dividends for them till today. They got acquired um, by Fairfax in 2006 for $700 million. Of course, Sam Morgan made a fortune out of it, and, and a few other in early investors in TradeMe made a small fortune out of it. But the reality is, is that now uh, the only real genuine competition there's, – there's two major players that compete against TradeMe today in New Zealand, which is Facebook Market. Because, of course, they're no fees offering. Uh, they offer promotions now, but, but it's still largely no fees. And, and then the market. So for new goods, there's a, uh, there's a competitor here uh, owned by the warehouse group, major massive retailing group here in New Zealand. And they're called the market. And for new goods and for major brands, major name brands, uh, the market is, has been very successful for both the warehouse and for those brands that, that work with them. But from a, from a used goods perspective and even from a new goods perspective, uh, you know, trade me is still, uh, you know, an 800 pound gorilla in this country. So it's, it's a very interesting beginning to that, but it all really came down to our poor, uh, telecommunications infrastructure. If, if we're being honest. That's a, that's a crazy story about trade me. I wasn't aware that that was the USP back in the day, but it just goes to show, doesn't it? That all you have to do is build something that works <laughs> at the end of the day. Well, it well and, and, it's, and it's localized, uh, and I guess is is localized for the market conditions that you have to, you know, that you're forced to operate in. You know, he could have said, "Oh, we've got crappy telecommunications here in New Zealand, so let's not even let's not do this at all because let's wait until we've got better internet mm -hmm. here, and then we'll create something amazing." You know, I guess I guess that whole concept of you know, it's be be a market leader wherever you can be be first to market wherever you can be create moats wherever you can you know try to win the hearts and minds of the locals wherever you can uh, try to play within the market conditions and try to you know you, you even see with trade me kiwis are are very sort of cheeky you know roguish kind of it's just it's just that sort of pioneering kind of culture and you can even see it woven throughout mm -hmm. their site they always had kind of a cheeky the way that the, the language that they used on the on the on the trade me website, their initial logo with the kiwi on the run, you know th that whole thing was was very much culturally culturally aligned with the way that kiwis sort of approach the world. And I think making yourself culturally relevant is just as important as making yourself technically relevant. I think there's also something very powerful about the supporting the local guys so to say i mean you see the same thing in france with c discount and fnac and even though amazon is still the biggest marketplace in france the gap between amazon and c discount is nowhere near as big as in the us uh you know the gaps between amazon and walmart or uh, in in other countries between amazon and otto in germany for example the or amazon and media Markt, the the there's something very powerful 
from the local consumers almost wanting to support their homegrown marketplace rather than just the big fish that's come in from from the US that shouldn't really be swimming in their pond, but happens to be. <laughs> I think the other thing that played in Trade Me's favor is the fact that that trust factor. Because remember, in 1999, that was still a time when people didn't really trust the internet. They didn't really trust buying online. They didn't really trust you know, foreign you know, especially buying on foreign websites and trusting that it would be shipped halfway around the world to them. You know, cross-border e-commerce just really wasn't that much of a thing back then. And so buying, being able to buy off of mm. a local website with a local support f- phone number, even though you had to pay, you had to pay to, to ring them. Uh, it, was, it was really expensive to ring them. I think it was $2 a minute or something like that to ring Trade Me. They had, uh, they had of course, a contact form, which they would eventually get back to you on. So they but but it was the fact that they were local it was the fact that it was started by a local entrepreneur it was the fact that they had the feedback system built in from day one where you could give feedback on buyers and sellers um and i think they did everything in their power to build a lot of trust around their brand in the early days and i think that more than anything else that is i i you know i don't want to wax lyrical about trade me too much because there were certainly things they could have done better but they almost single-handedly helped to build Kiwi trust in spending money online. They really did. I think it's a very organic growth that you haven't really seen with any other marketplaces in any other countries. There, there aren't, other than eBay, there aren't that many other kind of, there aren't that many stories that go from the beginnings of e-commerce, from the very beginning of the internet almost, or the consumer accessible internet that is still around today in very much that same format. There's one very small marketplace here in Germany called Hood, which is quite comparable. It belongs to a much larger group now, similar to, to Trade Me. But other than those two, I can't really think of another example. And it's it's really nice that there, that there are still a few of those around. Um, Absolutely. So I'm, I'm curious, to come back to what I was saying before, a lot of British and American and, and European businesses have uh, are now kind of looking at New Zealand and Australia again as, a, as an expansion opportunity where they might have left it alone a little bit in the last couple of years. I think a lot of businesses were waiting to see what would happen with Amazon. Could it knock eBay off its perch in, in Australia? You turn away, you come back, and now suddenly there's 10 guys on the block, and which one's the right one for me? Um, there's obviously the logistics hurdles. Australia is the size of a continent. How do you do that, especially when the, when the population is so spread out, and how do you make it cost-effective in a country where, you know, between Australia and New Zealand, you've got less than 40 million people. It's, it's you know, nothing close to the size of your US market or the European markets, but there's still money left on the table there. So how would a European or an, or an American business leverage that? How, how do you take advantage of it? Do you need to have logistics on the ground or are these are consumers there okay with waiting a bit longer and maybe paying a bit more to get goods because they're still used to the fact that it's coming from the other side of the world or have expectations kind of caught up and they're expecting next day delivery like they do in Europe? <clears throat> yeah, look, I, th- I think that inflation has has certainly tempered a lot of uh, – I think there's a combination of things. One is the strength of the US dollar at the moment combined with super high inflation uh, everywhere, but particularly in, in ANZ. Um, and our in our radically depressed currencies. I mean, uh, they've recovered somewhat over the last couple of months. But you know, take take six months ago, and our currencies were absolutely in the toilet. You know, we were kind of the South Pacific peso. But um, the reality is, is that uh, the cross border commerce. Whenever we have a high inflation environment, and whenever we have you know weak weak currencies, and when we whenever we have 
uh, sky high international logistics costs as we did during COVID, where everything just got ultra, ultra expensive. Uh, Cross-border commerce, certainly we saw it in the numbers that were reported by um, uh, Aussie Post, by New Zealand Post. We we saw that the numbers that they published around cross-border, the percentage of cross-border versus domestic commerce change, tipped heavily, heavily in favor of domestic uh, e-commerce as opposed to, to cross-border e-commerce, particularly during the height of COVID when, when stuff was just ridiculously expensive. And so obviously it was still, even even though international logistics for containers were, you know, they, they like quadrupled, uh, in some cases five or six times the cost of shipping a container from China to New Zealand or Australia, it was still less expensive than an individual person shipping something from the other side of the world. And so we definitely saw a, a decrease in cross-border commerce during COVID. Now that's starting to renormalize a little bit now as things somewhat get back to normal. Uh, but certainly there is been a push towards specifically by Amazon in Australia they've now got uh, you know the the largest two largest warehouses in the southern hemisphere based in Australia Sydney and Melbourne they have you know I forget how many tens of millions of products they got now I think it's I think I forget the number it's a huge number now and they also have recently uh, last year in and it was 20 I think it was early 22 or maybe even late 2021 when they started to effectively treat New Zealand uh, Amazon this is treat New Zealand as an extension of Australia and allowing Kiwis to buy on the Aussie website uh, Aussie Amazon website and allowed them to get free shipping on quite a significant range of goods uh, over certain thresholds and, and certain rules but it was a huge huge range of goods that they made free shipping to New Zealand from Australia and so certainly they're trying to effectively treat New Zealand as an extension of the Australian market. Like you said, we're often treated together as kind of the ANZ region. And so I think that that's, that's going to have a, a game-changing effect on the New Zealand market in particular. But I, I think we can't discount the – particularly for secondhand goods, I, I certainly don't think we can discount Facebook market. And I think if they – if Facebook started to treat market a little more seriously – I think they could do a lot of damage. And if, if they allowed auctions uh, to be able to be run on Facebook market, if they had a better feedback system, because the feedback system is impossible to navigate. It's, and uh, as I understand it, their feedback system only works on mobile. doesn't work on desktop. So I, I, look, I, I don't know what Facebook is doing there. But the reality is I, I know anecdotally and also from my own use and my wife's use that Facebook market is getting – and you can just look at the sheer volume of things <clears throat> on Facebook market. You can see how much stuff is moving uh, you know, because TradeMe has consistently raised their costs, both their success fees and their listing fees over the years to where they're massively expensive. For most people, it'll run them from sort of 7 to 12 percent of uh, of the value of the goods that it'll cost them. It's obviously very relevant with the Facebook market side of things, because obviously, particularly in the last few years, the circular economy is very much becoming a topic and, and a whole niche of marketplaces is sustainable marketplaces, whether it's for reused, refurbished electronics or for secondhand clothing. That's a whole niche and it's nice in a way. I mean, circular commerce, but circular marketplaces. We're coming back to where marketplaces started with the likes of eBay, where it was someone selling an old lawnmower to the guy in a couple of states over. And now here we are again, we're reselling old products back to people that want to show them a little bit more love and, and you know pre-owned pre-loved whatever you want to call it um we're back in that world and as you say facebook just need to put a little bit more behind that to to give it a go but i think it's tough to monetize that in the sense that yeah you can maybe get away with charging commissions but then 
it's a little bit less it, it takes something away from the community aspect of being able to look at the profile of the person that you're buying that lawnmower from versus a business profile that then perhaps maybe looks a bit more like an advert. Yeah, well, as I understand it, the the reason, and I, I read this article a few years ago when, I can't remember exactly when Facebook market started. I think it was in earnest maybe three years ago or something. But uh, I, what, what I, I remember reading at the time, there was an article, I think it may have been in TechCrunch or one of the major digital press um, you know, investigative journalists broke the story that internally one of the prime motivators between behind Facebook market was not to make money off of the people selling goods in that market. It was to actually get – it was actually to build up their training data set for, for product images. That was their that was their goal and to be able to accurately identify and tag and uh, you know provide – it was it was to feed their AI algorithms with with a wholesale data set of images that then they could train their AI on. Now, what they were ultimately going to do with that, I mm-hmm. think, is is open for debate. But certainly, in terms of being able to create, even back then, they were talking about AR, VR, etc., and they needed a massive training data set that didn't require incredible manpower and woman power internally to create these training data sets to, you know, to manually tag products with details and names and SKUs and all this sort of stuff. And so they, uh, they really were effectively leveraging this marketplace where as a seller, it's in your best interest to give a great description. It's in your best interest to take good photos. It's in your best interest to give them the right categorization. It's in your best interest to give them the right product tags. Um, and so as a result of that, they effectively leveraged marketplace as this giant, database of non-copyrighted product images that then they could do all sorts of other clever things with um, in in terms of their AI. Mm. And so that was, as I understand it, and as I read it at the time, that was their prime motivator behind setting up Facebook market. Now, of course, they probably saw into the future some parallel paths converging on that, i.e., uh, you know, brands, because you you do see marketing, you do see pay-per-click marketing there. You see ads sprinkled in without, in throughout the listings. Um, but they don't make it easy to differentiate in terms of the products for sale on market. They don't make it that easy to differentiate between brand selling there and selling new goods. It, you know, it's not like Amazon where it's super crystal clear. Okay, these are brands selling brand new stuff versus this is somebody trying to sell something secondhand on on Amazon. You know, they don't make it mm-hmm. they don't make it that easy, right? And I think that you know maybe maybe that's a path that they could go down in the future where they could get a listing fee they could get a success fee um they'd have to they'd have to support auctions obviously they'd have to have a much better feedback system but i think that they they maybe looked into the future and they said what is the fastest easiest way we can get up and running with something that will get suck in a whole bunch of users uh keep them on facebook for longer keep them coming back to facebook for longer and simultaneously build up a massive training uh, visual data set uh and 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 machine learning visual you know visual machine learning and and machine vision uh, how can we get how can we train our machine vision models to to be very good very fast uh and this was certainly one of the ways that they looked to do it so i, I think there was probably multiple commercial ends in mind behind facebook market but man it, it is it is swept uh, the local market significantly in line with the rise of selling the, the rise of costs of selling on trade me okay so i'd like to change gear a little bit We've covered lots of different parts of the world here, and I want to cover another one because at the end of the month, you're moving to Mexico, the end of an era, almost 30 years in New Zealand. You're moving back to North America. 
Can I ask why? What's what's taking you to Mexico? Mexico has one of the most favorable, uh, I guess, immigration programs and, and residency programs in the world. Plus, I grew up in Southern California, close to Mexico. I took Spanish in high school. Uh, love the culture, love the people, love the food, love the weather, love the activities that are available there. Uh, you know, It's just a very, very cool country, and it's got a lot going for it. They were one of the only countries in the world that actually didn't close their borders during COVID. They were one of the only countries in the world that never required you to even have a negative test uh, for COVID to even get into the country. So they, their economy actually boomed during COVID, surprisingly, when most other countries really suffered during COVID. They actually moved in terms of GDP. They moved up to, I think it's the 16th largest economy in the world now. Uh, so they absolutely exploded during COVID. And they were one of, the, one of, the, one of only a handful of countries that you could go to as a tourist during COVID. And so they, they had a, a tremendous amount of global tourism flowing their way. And e-commerce is booming in Mexico. Um, and they're certainly looking for people with my type of skills and, and certainly proximity to the United States and being able to go to conferences in, in North America, again, physical mm -hmm. conferences, meet people that maybe I only have ever known for years online. Um, certainly just, I think the opportunities in Mexico right now are massive combined with Mexico being a massive benefactor of the global supply chain woes and lots of American companies trying to bring back or at least diversify their manufacturing away from China and bringing some of that closer to home in Mexico. And so they benefited from a lot of the, the proximity you know, to other North American countries, obviously Canada, Canada, uh, United States, and then obviously Central and South American countries, their pivotal place as part of that LATAM sort of group of countries. I think I think there was a whole lot of things that conspired together to make us think Mexico was a good idea, um, but certainly we we just think that it puts us in a really good position geographically to access lots of other really important economies. Uh, combined with just a just a for me personally, I've been to, to Mexico quite a few times, and and I just think it's a fantastic country. And the people I think are some of the most welcoming, loving people in the world, uh, and I and I really respect that about them. Well, it sounds really exciting. Uh, I've never been to Mexico. It's it's definitely on the list. For a, from a marketplace perspective, when I think Mexico, the only thing that springs to mind is Amazon Mexico, and and, and I don't know how successful that is. I've I've personally not had that many clients successfully sell on Amazon Mexico. Is Mercado Libre in in Mexico as well? I'm not sure if Mercado Libre is there. That's a very very good question. I know that they're they're big across Latin America, obviously. Um... Yeah. Uh, outside of Mexico. I'm not sure how good they are in Mexico. I think the thing that makes Amazon, as I understand it, because I'm in lots of uh, expat uh, groups on Facebook groups online that for expats moving to Mexico. And so from what I understand, one of the reasons why Amazon is doing so well there um, and, and perhaps over the next decade is probably one of their countries with, with some of the best growth opportunities is because logistics in Mexico are really poor. And so their domestic mail service, the equivalent of, you know, the United, the, um, United States postal service, I think it's, you would never use it. You would never use it for anything significant. And so the likes of FedEx, the likes of DHL, but now increasingly the likes of Amazon with their own fully separate, mm. uh, internal logistics capabilities, i.e. their own logistics hubs, their own trucks, their uh, own aircraft. I, I think that is what is starting to really cause them to be set apart and have huge trust in Mexico. 
Because for a long time, there was massive questions about when you bought online, whether you're actually going to get your goods or not, or how long it was going to take to get there. And so uh, that's mm -hmm. why you know you see Costco, for example, and Walmart doing so well in Mexico because they're setting up physical stores, massive physical stores in all the main centers uh, throughout Mexico because they because you know they can have containers shipped right to their back door. Uh, and the customers can come in and directly and get it, and they know that they'll get it, and they'll know that they'll get it for that price, and they know that they'll be able to take it home straight away. And so I think that, I think that logistics is, you know, because there's because it's such a massive geographical area. I mean, Mexico is a massive country, and uh, and so I think that logistics is probably their biggest challenge, uh, as it is in many countries, many physically large countries like Australia, like like the United States. I, I think you know logistics is always a nightmare, and I, I think that Amazon has a chance to really own the marketplace space in Mexico moving forward because they are basically a logistics company with a, a, a retail front end, a retail e-commerce front end. That's basically yeah. what they are. They're basically a logistics business. And if there's one thing that 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 Amazon is great at is logistics. You know, they they have honed. Uh, you know, they've developed their own robotics technology for their warehouses and everything else because nobody out there can build the stuff that they really want to reach the levels of efficiency that they need to be successful with the razor thin margins that are in the logistics industry. And so, yeah, look, I, it'll be interesting once I get there to see, you know, once, once I consider myself boots on the ground there, it's going to be really, really interesting to get local feedback from people, you know, people in the streets, so to speak, of, of get their real sense of what they feel about Amazon driving around. Do I see lots of Amazon cartons at people's front doors? I don't know. Uh, but it's going to be super interesting to see what that, what that looks like once I'm actually there. And do you already have a project lined up for when you hit the ground? Uh, I, I'm going to, I'm basically going to continue doing exactly what I'm doing now. So really it's just a ge geographical change. I mean, I already serve uh, you know clients in the northern hemisphere, Europe, etc., from New Zealand, and so I'm used to dealing in weird time zones for for uh, client calls. Um, and so it'll be the same, and it'll just mean that you know my weird time zones in terms of client calls will happen to be A and Z, uh, my clients in A and Z, as opposed mm -hmm. to my clients in Europe and, and North America. So nothing specific that I you know obviously I, I suspect that I will be taking on a lot more North American clients once I'm there, simply because. Time zones will be easier. I'll be what they would consider more local to them, and uh, you know, I could I could pretty easily fly to the states and meet with a customer should it should it be required. Although the one beautiful thing about COVID was that it pretty much eliminated the client's expectations that you would ever see them in person. Uh, prior to that, prior to COVID, there was still some latent expectation out there that people would want to look you in the eye at least once before signing on the dotted line. But with COVID, there's you know pretty much none of my customers would ever expect that they would ever see me in person. Every cloud is a silver lining, as they say. So absolutely, I I have to ask you. You mentioned going to conferences in the U.S. That's something that I'm also looking forward to. Face-to-face -face conferences are, are still a great medium for meeting people in our industry. Is there anyone in particular in the marketplace space that you're looking forward to finally meeting in person or to seeing again? Um, no marketplace specific conferences. In fact, I'm not even aware of what the marketplace specific conferences are in the United States. But there's certainly some broader e you know e-commerce you know retail's big show NRF. There's people uh, all over the world going there right now. In fact, planning to go to retail big show the, the big retail show, and and I'd love to go to that because I've never been. Um, South by South by uh, I've never been. Would love to go to that. There's a couple of other major you know e-conference e-commerce specific conferences uh, held in different parts of the United States that I, that I'd love to get to. Um, and most of those e-commerce specific conferences will have 
marketplace specific tracks uh, throughout throughout mm -hmm. their two three days that they, they might be operating. So certainly, I'll get exposed to a lot more marketplace specific content than what we typically get in in conferences down here in ANZ. Certainly, there's a little bit of discussion about marketplaces, but it's just not. I don't think it's as big of a a topic for for conferences as it is in in North America. I, I think it's a it seems to be much more on the American agenda than it does necessarily on the ANZ agenda. And I think that the the reason for that is probably that down here it's it's really cut and dried. You know, ha which marketplaces you would typically want to be working with, and that the when we think about the major marketplace listing engines that integrate with e-commerce websites or ERPs for example there's only a couple down in this part of the world that support kind of all of the localized marketplaces down here that support you know catch group that support trade me mm -hmm. that support you know most of the major integration middleware tools in North America they don't support they don't support all of the local marketplaces and so there's been a cottage industry around those those uh, omni-channel listing tools and integration tools that then not only list products mm -hmm. but also pull orders back down for fulfillment and then update statuses with tracking details back into the local marketplaces as well and update things like inventory and all that sort of stuff. There's a, there's, there's a handful of local omni-channel integration tools that do that down here and they support all the local marketplaces and they have all the uh, they have all the SEO optimization capabilities, for example, the, the marketplace-specific slice and dice they can take basically your catalog and they can slice and dice it uh to for the best seo in in these individual local marketplaces so um yeah it's going to be super interesting to see once i'm there how different that might be particularly in the north american market but but down here um yeah conferences have to be pretty broad i think down here they kind of have to cover everything related to e-commerce if they're an e-commerce conference because they want to draw in as, as broad a crowd as possible. Whereas in North America, you have you have you know hundreds or probably thousands of brands that are marketplace only, and or or, or well, definitely Amazon native brands that don't list any and don't sell anywhere else other than on, on Amazon or on marketplaces specifically. So it makes sense that you would have conferences dedicated to marketplaces in North America because you have so many brands that only sell there. I don't know too many brands down here in ANZ that would only sell on Amazon, for example. It's 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 too small of a market. You, you kind of have to be in more places down here. Yeah, it's that that brings me to one to one final question actually, because I I know that a large part of your expertise is is B two B, and B two B marketplaces are a huge opportunity that that we've unfortunately not really touched on yet. Um, I, I'd love to know your perspective if. If a brand, as you just described, who is traditionally B2C or D2C, whatever you want to call it, and maybe even just on marketplaces, how can they take advantage of a B2B marketplace? Because marketplaces, I think, are a very unique business model or marketplace sellers are, have a very unique business model. It's a little bit outside of what was a traditional business to consumer where you would maybe you would have business buying products from another business B2B and then it would be the 2C part and now you've got people buying products directly from the manufacturer and selling it directly to consumer and some of them aren't even touching the products it's going straight to an FBA warehouse and nobody on their team even looks at that item before the before it's in the consumer's hand and it's a completely different world of getting products into consumers hands but for those sellers 
that are selling one skipping rope or yoga mat or water bottle or whatever it is to a consumer on Amazon and hopefully also other marketplaces, there's an opportunity for them to be selling a thousand yoga mats to a B2B customer that they might never have considered. And now suddenly you've got opportunities through B2B marketplaces. Marketplaces is a world they already know. But how can they take advantage of that? Yeah, look, I, I, it, it's a very, very good question, and I think that almost anyone who is a manufacturer, wholesaler, or distributor that is currently selling D2C via marketplaces or even via their own website, if they aren't very, very seriously looking at establishing a B2B channel, whether that's through a B2B marketplace or you know, direct selling to uh, you know, other merchants – if they're not looking at that, then they're probably missing out on a massive opportunity to de-risk their business overall because B2B tends to be much more consistent, tends to be much more scalable, you know, and it's and it's easier from an internal customer management, customer service perspective, even from an internal logistics perspective. It is there's a lot less complexity involved in selling cartons, pallets, and containers than there is selling individual items to an individual consumer. Now, on the flip side of that, there is much, much greater, tends to be much, much greater technical complexity involved, meaning they might be able to run their Amazon business out of spreadsheets and zero uh, and letting all the logistics and everything be handled by Amazon, etc. But you can't do that when you're doing B2B, especially, well, you probably can for, you know, until you get up to about a million dollars a year in revs. But Beyond that, you need to have a full-blown ERP. You need to have an order management system. You need to probably have a warehouse management system, or you need to be fully integrated into a 3PL service that that has a, a full-blown WMS. Um, so there's there's quite a bit more technical complexity, and also you can't use typically when you're shipping, you know, cartons and pallets and containers, you're not using the same types of carriers that you would for D2C either. And so therefore, you've got bulk carriers oftentimes that don't necessarily have the advanced APIs. It's, it's, they're more difficult to integrate with to get tracking information back out of and get it to your customers. It's just a whole different, it's just a totally different ball game in B2B. So there's, there's pros and cons to it. But the one thing I would say is a massive pro is that there's much more stability, uh, generally speaking. You know, you're not at the total mercy of the end consumer and discretionary spending. And so my, my one thing I would say, sure, of course, the people, the B2B customers that you sell to are then usually exposed to the end consumer, absolutely. But but because in the B2B space, you're not doing all of the marketing, you're not doing you're not you're not you're not trying to do Facebook marketing and Google marketing and and Amazon marketing and and all the rest. You're not trying you, you don't have to have this incredibly on the pulse digital marketing strategy and execution when you're B2B because that's the responsibility of your customers when you're, when you're B2B. They have to spend all the money. They have to be the ones that do all the marketing. They have to be the ones that build their email list. They have to be the ones that, you know, not to say that the, the level of, for example, in the, because of the death of third-party cookies, the impending death, and of course iOS changes, a lot of D2C brands are now starting to realize, hey, we need a CDP. We need to be gathering lots of zero and first-party data so that we can do proper remarketing, so that we can, you know, so that we can build brand loyalty and repurchase uh, possibilities and and all the rest, and so that we can create lookalike audiences that that we don't have to be, you know, buying into the Googles and the Facebooks of the world wholesale and be totally dependent on them. 
you know, B2B brands are realizing that too. And that's one of the reasons why they are – a lot of native B2B brands are establishing a D2C channel alongside their B2B uh, channel. So I think it's going both ways. I think it's, I think it's going from – and I think there's huge opportunity going both directions. I think there's a massive opportunity for, for native D2B, D2C brands to diversify their channel mix a little bit, to de-risk their business a little bit, and to also learn about – what, what the B2B sector looks like just by slowly dipping their toes into those waters, just taking on one or two B2B clients, understanding what that looks like, you know, working through the process of onboarding them into the business and getting products into their hands and making them happy. Uh, and I think that's equally true of B2B brands that can establish a D2C channel through, say, for example, a marketplace. They don't have to set up their own D2C website or anything like that. They can just dip their toes in the water via a B2B marketplace and via a, a D2C marketplace. Um, or a, a, just a, a B2C marketplace, and they can start to understand just even with a limited subset of their catalog, they can p- go into a B2C marketplace. Maybe, maybe let's say they sell 10,000 products. Well, maybe they only put 500 of those products initially on a marketplace. Their their highest margin goods that they can ma- they can lever they can accept hemorrhaging some margin to the marketplace through listing and success fees. Uh, but what they can do is they can start to understand what it's like to service end consumers because a lot of times they don't and they don't realize how much they're going to have to set up something like a gorgeous or help desk system. They're going to have to be dealing with with emails. They're going to have to be dealing with phone calls. They're going to have to be dealing with live chats. They're going to have to be – they're just going to have to – the the level of engagement that they're going to have with an end consumer is totally different to the level of engagement that they would have via a sales rep with a B2B customer, for example, and having to take on this one-to-one logistics model. And, uh, and so I think there's huge mm-hmm. benefit going both directions, absolutely. Coming back to a point we talked about earlier on, uh, on the international expansion side, for, for a native D2C brand or for a brand which is kind of built up, you know, these lots of these uh, startup D2C companies where you never had a B2B. It was in a, in a garage and then it grew into a rented warehouse somewhere, and then it grew into a 3PL space, and now suddenly it's a you know multi-million dollar company. And for these kinds of companies, often the biggest blocker from an international perspective or an international expansion perspective is the on-the-ground presence, the on-the-ground know-how, the logistics sides of things. You know, with, with things like Instagram and, and or TikTok and whatever kind of marketing you're doing these brands have exposure to customers around the world they're going to be getting inquiries from that random guy on a farm somewhere in the back end of new zealand who wants to buy that product but just can't get it because no one's ready to send it all the way to new zealand and deal with the taxes and the the shipping and the i don't even know what's involved so i'm not even going to bother trying and turning on that option even if it's on a marketplace but Maybe there's a buyer in New Zealand or even Australia who's prepared to buy 5,000 units and add it onto their website because it's a complementary product to the rest of their offering, or maybe it's a local YouTuber that has a following and would like to have similar products. It could be anything, um, but that's an opportunity there to really to get into that new market without any work. You, It's one transaction. You send 5,000 units once. Maybe it's a pallet directly from China to New Zealand, which is going to be cheaper probably than getting it to you in Europe. It's a no-brainer. As you say, it's money left on the table. And I think a lot of uh, there's, there's going to be a lot of growth in that B2B space. And I'm really excited to see what marketplaces come up in, in that space. Um, but look, we've, we've spoken now for, for a very long time. I've taken a, a lot of your time. So let's, let's bring it home. Jason, I'd love to 
hear from you because I know obviously you've got your own podcast. I know you've got a few episodes about marketplaces. You've got a few different ones with experts from around the world. You've got almost 200 episodes last time I looked. So I'm curious if a listener hears this podcast first and wants to go and check out more of your work. Is there a particular episode of your podcast you'd like to direct them to that you think could be relevant? Um, or, or do you have any other resources you'd like to point people towards? No, but what I will say is that um, we've recently rebranded as of 2023. We rebranded the podcast. It was at the Coalface podcast previously. It's now the e-commerce edge podcast. I felt it was more on point and on trend for what we're doing this year. We have we have an amazing uh, sub-series that we have that's called Mentoring Moments that's part of the e-commerce edge podcast. So we've got our weekly drops, which are usually focused on technology leaders with SaaS e-commerce uh, omni-channel and retail technology leaders. We, we have that drop every Thursday. And then most Tuesdays, we also have a Mentoring Moments episode. So I've got a group and one-to-one uh, one mentoring mentorship program. They're both free. Um, if you go to greenwoodconsulting.net, you can scroll down to the bottom of the page and you can click the Get Mentored by Jason, and it'll take you to the mentorship page where you can sign up for both of those programs. Again, totally free. We take the best clips, the best wow. snippets from those from those mentorship uh, from those mentorship two mentorship programs. We put those into a, an aggregated podcast episode, and those come out most Tuesdays. Um, and so that that will hopefully be super helpful for people trying to understand something that's contextual to them and hopefully something that's super useful and applicable to them in the here and the now. And then we're also going to create another um, sub-series or segment uh, very soon, which is going to be completely B2B focused. And so we're going, to tr we're going to try to really bring a whole lot of new content to the podcast this year outside of our normal, you know, what we would normally have on the podcast and try to make it super relevant, super applicable. We're up to episode 183, as you said. So that would be a, a great place to go and check out more from me. Uh, but the other place where I put out the vast majority of my content first and in the most level of detail is on LinkedIn. So if they go and they connect with me on LinkedIn or they follow me on LinkedIn, then they'll, they'll kind of get the hot off the press stuff. Uh, I, I generally post most of my content first to LinkedIn. Fantastic. I'll do my best to include all the relevant links in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to listen in. Australia and New Zealand hold a special place in my heart as it was my home for five years and it's where I got my start in the professional world. After almost eight years of being back in Europe and in the e-commerce industry, it was really interesting for me to hear from Jason about how e-commerce grew in that part of the world. For post-Brexit British sellers and European or American sellers looking for opportunities to expand internationally, the ANZ region has a lot of logistical hurdles, but also a lot of opportunities, as we've just heard from Jason. There are ways to test the market out there before going all in. For example, cross-seasonality would allow you to sell end-of-line or out-of-season products here, which might otherwise sit around gathering dust. You can also take advantage of B2B opportunities, be it a marketplace or a more traditional route to find local partners who can take care of getting your goods to your buyers in this new market, removing most of these hurdles entirely. I'm Jesse Rag from eChameleon. Thanks again for joining us to listen to Marketplace Jungle, and feel free to get in touch with me directly if you've got any questions or comments about this episode, or would like to recommend guests you think would be relevant to our audience.